you're looking for real truth, real talk radio, make sure you log on to KIRPRadioshow.com. Sunday nights live, 8 p.m. with your host. K-I-R-P Radio! Thank you for tuning in to the K-I-R-P Radio Show, keeping it real with Pudgy. As you probably know by now, I am not Pudgy, but I thank him. I am Rocco P. Rocco Pisertia Pudgy graciously lets me host his show last Sunday night of every month. And I'm glad to do that. I'm glad for this platform. I appreciate him. I appreciate you, his listeners. Tonight I'd like to focus on the Constitution and really one aspect of the Constitution. And that would be Article 5. Article 5. Many people now are making uh, this call to hold an Article 5 convention I have always referred to such as a constitutional convention, but the advocates of such uh, very strongly disagree with that. They think that is a a blatant misrepresentation of what an Article 5 convention is. And if we read Article 5, you could see what it says. Uh, You see what it says outright. And I'll read it now. All right. Article 5 of the Federal Constitution. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states or by conventions in three-fourths thereof as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1808 shall in any matter affect the first and fourth clauses in the ninth section of the first article that no state without its consent shall be deprived of sequel suffrage in the Senate. So apart from, we at the end, we start talking about eight, yeah, 1808. It talks about this mechanism to propose amendments in the Constitution. Uh, we have never had an Article 5 Constitution. I think that is that's very significant. We, we've just, we have never had an Article 5, Constitu- an Article 5 uh, Convention to amend the Constitution. There's, amendments have been adopted, and the framers made it difficult, uh, to say the least, to actually amend the Constitution. So, for me, as I look at this, and uh, I'm going to have uh, going to have a friend, really an expert, uh, someone who's a full-time act- activist, Jeff Lewis. He'll be coming on shortly. But the, when I look at this issue, I've looked at it in detail, done a little bit of writing, and to me, what happens the way the controllers, the way the people in power manipulate us is that we're dealing with 100 plus years of progressive, which is really collectivist influence. You know, they started government education, which they call public education you know, started big time about 100 years ago. Uh, this idea is it's really Marxism, where uh, the idea of free public education, of course, it's not free. We pay perpetual property taxes. So you may know no one really owns a home or a business because even if you don't have a mortgage, even if you don't own any loans on a business, you know what happens. You miss one 
payment for your property taxes, and you know what they do. You lose it. So in 100-plus year, years progressive or collective thought, this is what they've done. They've really they've made the Constitution, and they've said it's really it's a, almost a mystical document. They, they won't use that word, but they'll basically say you have to be you know, an expert. You, you just you, The regular people can't comprehend at all what's in there. And, you know, they do this across the board in many areas because that's a control mechanism to control all of us. If they can convince us that the Constitution is absolutely incomprehensible to most people, well, then it actually means nothing because then you have to trust someone else to explain it to you. Case in point, you see this every time there's a, there's a, a big Supreme Court ruling. And... Uh, the mainstream media, which serves, you know, the government powers, you know, the two-party system that's in place, you know, heads I win, tails you lose. Uh, the mainstream media will say that the the Supreme Court has ruled, and therefore that makes it constitutional. You might remember that with Obamacare, with the so-called Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional because it was a tax. Uh, the, the Supreme Court doesn't have this mystical power to make something constitutional because they declare it so. And in that case with, with Obamacare, I'll just make two points in passing. Number one, there's nothing in the enumerated powers, Article 1, Section 8, what Congress mentions, uh, what Congress is supposed to do. You could break down those enumerated powers. Some people say it's about 19 or so. Uh, there's nothing about health care, period. So nothing that the federal government government does in terms of health care is or ever will be constitutional unless the Constitution was changed, number one. Number two, uh, if the Supreme Court was honest, and they're not, uh, and they did say it was a tax, and of course we know now if you followed you know, the Gruber situation, they, they lied, they, they knew they could only get it through Congress by lying and saying it wasn't a tax. But if they were honest, they said, okay, it's a tax, well then, you got to start over because revenue bills start in the House, but they didn't do it. They waived the, the magical Supreme Court wand and said it was legal, it was constitutional. So there's a lot of fallacies when we come to this Article 5 convention talk. Uh, number one, the Constitution isn't the problem. Obeying is the problem. Okay. Case in point, again, with Obamacare. If Congress simply confined themselves, if they restricted themselves to what was in the Constitution, we we wouldn't there'd be no Obamacare, there'd be no Medicare, there'd be no Medicaid. Okay, so it's not the Constitution, it's following it's a moral problem. Number number one. Number two, why would you expect the current occupants of Congress to actually improve the Constitution? Okay, they're not there's a serious moral problem. These people are by and large oath breakers. They've they've broken their oath to uphold the Constitution. So why would you imagine that they would be motivated to actually improve the the Constitution. And even if they did, why do you think, even if they did pass a good amendment, which or amendments, which is, to me, you know, the probability of that would be you know, next to zero. But you, let's say they did, theoretically. Why would you expect then, it's like magic again, why would they obey it when they're ignoring so much of the Constitution today? And a lot of these people that are pushing, my third point would be this as far as a logical fallacy, things that make absolutely no sense about this. Why would you expect the people who occupy the state houses, state legislatures, to improve the Constitution? So some of the, some of the people, and Jeff will get into this, I'm sure, some of the people that are pushing hard 
for this Article 5 Constitutional Convention, they're creating this fake debate, this fake scenario saying, well, the federal government's failed us, so, you know, the states have to come in. You know, we need, we need a convention of the states to come in, and, you know, they'll, they'll right all wrongs. They'll, they'll have one meeting, and, oh, that, that'll fix everything. Everything will be good. It's like, okay, well, you break down Article 5, and Congress is involved. They call the convention. Okay, so it, it's, it's ludicrous to say it's going to be controlled by the states. It's really, I would go so far as to say it's a lie to say it would be a convention of the states. All right, number one. Number two. The current occupants of the state houses, we see this dramatically in North Carolina, are oath breakers also. At this point, the states could come in. You look at you look at abortion, okay? The most fundamental right is the right to life, right? The state of North Carolina respects that Supreme Court ruling, Roe versus Wade, making that made abortion quote legal. Okay, Supreme Court <laughs> violated, yeah. The spirit of the Constitution, talk about you know, life, liberty, proves happiness in the Declaration of Independence, they violate that, then the states, the states comply. North Carolina is under no obligation to follow any law that violates the Constitution. North Carolina can make a law in states saying abortion is legal in the state of North Carolina. They don't even have to amend the North Carolina Constitution. They can just say it's illegal here. They won't do that. So, now we get to Article 5. If the current occupants of North Carolina General Assembly refuse to stand up against the federal government when uh, they refuse to oppose abortion, they refuse to oppose Obamacare, why in the world would you think if North Carolina would send a delegation to an Article 5 convention that then they would take the Constitution seriously? You know, just, there is no, no absolute reason to think that. Jeff Lewis, uh, who will be joining us, is the founder of Patriot Watchdog. He's a co-founder and national director of the Patriot Coalition, national director of Federal Immigration Reform and Enforcement Coalition, or the FIRE Coalition. The coalition those coalitions that Jeff leads have active legislation re and resolutions in Congress, as well as in state and local governments across the country, all of which are intended to restore constitutional governments and law and order to our once great republic. Yeah, as I've gotten to know Jeff, I see that's where the battlefield really is. Uh, it's at the state houses, and and Jeff and the Patriot Coalition have worked, you know, very very hard at getting legislation introduced in the states to roll back the power of the federal government to violate the Constitution or to interpose against the federal government when the federal government violates the Constitution. Uh, Jeff Lewis is veteran operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And he has survived cancer four times. Uh, there can be no honorable pursuit of happiness without defending our God-given unalienable rights. And there can be no honor without giving our all to preserve the blessings of liberty our constitutional public provides. Over the past nine years, Jeff's testified before state legislat legislatures across the country, consulted and advised federal, state, and local candidates for Office on Immigration, national security, and constitutional issues, including presidential candidates in 2008 and 2012 elections. He's conducted briefings for members of Congress, state legislatures, and hosted, hosted national security conferences across the country. Jeff's model is that to be a patriot defending in life, defending life and liberty is the pursuit of happiness. Jeff, are you there? I am. Good evening, yes. sir. I, I am glad you could join us, Jeff. 
appreciate your input, appreciate what you do to attempt to uh, help restore the uh, the republic. Uh, I know you've been looking at this. Uh, there's so much to be said. Uh, there's so many things you've done, but just focus a little bit like a laser on this Article 5 convention. Uh, what is the Patriot Coalition's position on, on holding an Article 5 convention? Well, it's the wrong solution to the wrong problem. Okay, wrong. Not, and what, yeah, what not, do you mean by that? Opposed, we're not opposed to using uh, Article 5 to amend the Constitution. That's where we got the Bill of Rights. That's where women got suffrage and right to vote. Um, <clears throat> but that's also where we got the 16th and 17th Amendment. So it's not a perfect system. Okay, would you talk a little but bit about not, the 16th but, Amendment? But, but uh, you mentioned the 16th well, Amendment in passing. Could you say what, what was the issue with that? Well, some some argue, and I don't, uh, about the validity of its ratification. Uh, others say, and I am more in this camp, uh, that uh, it was not designed for uh, wage earners that were not uh, working for the federal government. And, and yet it applies to everybody. So, so what was the 16th Amendment? The income tax. Income tax, income okay. Tax. Right. Yeah, I, I've read that too. The original intent is that uh, it was only, it was not a new means of revenue. It was it was merely just a way to collect revenue in a different way and was only aimed purely at corporate, uh, yeah, at corporate profit. It had nothing to do with individual income. I've also, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have said there, I think there were four, Supreme Court cases that made that clear. Yeah. But uh, as it relates to uh, Article 5, we're not opposed to using it. Uh, Madison said that it was there to uh, uh, implement the amendments of error because they knew there might be something that needed to be addressed in the future. He knew that there was a Bill of Rights coming. Um. So we're not opposed to using it, but they say half the half the uh, the battle of solving any problem is correctly identifying the problem and amending the Constitution. And, and it doesn't matter whether Congress proposes the amendment or a convention called by Congress proposes the amendments. <coughs> if if they won't follow them now. You mentioned this in your uh, your opening. Um, there's no guarantee that changing words on paper, in fact, there's no evidence that changing words on the paper are going to make them uphold things such as the, you know, the Second Amendment. It shall not be infringed. Or Congress shall make no law. I mean, you see both of those phrases in the, the, the Second and the First Amendment, respectively. And uh, they claim they just want to clarify the language because it's been being misinterpreted. But you, you, you've got a hard road to, hide it, to to say some of this stuff more clearly than the framers already did. And the, the, the risk is that um, when I, if you look at the amendments that 
some, and there's over a hundred amendments being proposed, uh, batted around. Some of them introduces in the actual application um, from the extreme left and the extreme right. Uh, but it, it doesn't matter which way you propose the amendments. If they get them in record time, it's going to go right back to Congress. And you mentioned the enumerated powers. The very last clause in there is the necessary and proper clause. That's that's where Congress derives its direct authority to write laws to execute the Constitution, to carry it into action. So you pass an amendment that tells Congress, and we mean it this time, unless we change how we interact with Congress, start holding them accountable, because they're not upholding it now. That's part of the problem with that. And they said, you know, the federal courts are part of the problem. Well, federal courts are part of the problem for twofold reasons. One, uh, the president, the executive branch, appoints all federal judges, and on the advice and consent of Congress, they become federal judges pretty much for life, in, or in times, or as the Constitution says, in times of good behavior. Well, they're not held to that good behavior, and whose responsibility is it? to check that unbridled power, Congress. The very Congress that we're not holding accountable. The very Senate that doesn't vet these potential uh, judges. And they have impeached uh, in the 200... (coughs) Excuse me. In the 200-plus year uh, history of our federal court system, they've only impeached about 15 federal judges and removed them from the bench. And we know that there's no problems there. What would you say is the root problem? And I think I know what you're going to say. What do you think is the root problem? Why why won't amending the Constitution solve it? Well, I I started cracking the lid on that can of worms. And it's the part that people don't really want to hear. But the real problem is in the mirror. It's us. (laughs) And until we start uh, doing a better job of vetting candidates... And then, then holding their feet to the fire once they get elected, and that's just for federal, state, and local offices. Remember the employer-employee relationship, and, and we, the people, are the boss, and they are public servants. That's why they're called servants <laughs> um, to kind of remind them and us of who's the boss, and it's not them; they're the servants. Theoretically, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So if we Could, uh, if we don't identify the right if we don't identify the root problem, we're not gonna. How are we gonna know um, that we're choosing the right solution, or if what we're choosing sure. is the solution at all? And sure. I, I, we say they haven't uh, uh, correctly defined the problem, and that their solution not only won't solve the problem, it doesn't even address the problem that they've addressed. So that they implied that they need to trigger it for. No, I, I, I agree so wholeheartedly. Wrong, wrong I mean, like, solution. Yeah. So wrong solution to the wrong problem. Yeah, I, and and they really prey as people in power do, and both parties really prey upon people's frustration. As you know, I mean, you're out there more than me traveling the country, and uh, people are frustrated, and the frustration is real. That they've seen politicians lie. They see no matter who's elected, nothing changes. And then 
yeah, these Article 5 people come in, yeah, when they want to be magicians and just say, well, if we have this, then, yeah, everything everything will be made right. <laughs> well, we're generally we're generally drawn to a, a left-right paradigm in, in that the two choices are offering us, one of them may be um, the lesser of, of the two evils, but it's still evil. And neither yes. one of them will be the answer to the, the problem or address the problem. So if I've no, got absolutely. You know, uh, kidney stones and your solutions are chop off my right hand or my left hand, and I'm losing out, plus it's not even addressing the initial problem. It's making things worse. Yeah. If they did call, if they did hold an Article 5 convention and you could rehearse you know, what Article 5 says, how many states have to apply, if they did hold one, uh, to uh, would it be able to be controlled? Uh, how you know would the outcome be ensured? Because I know there's different groups out there saying that they could they use language like pre-ratifying stuff. So could such convention be controlled, and if so, to what extent and by whom? Well, there's <clears throat> it's almost a trick question um, in that uh, the, the the standard binary argument you hear is that, well, Congress will control a convention, or that the states will control a convention, or or that the convention itself um, will control itself. It, yeah, just like the Constitution. Just like the Constitution is, is self-enforcing, right? <laughs> right. But the, the it really doesn't matter. Which remember what we, you and I talked about this before. That you know what happened to the German people. That some of the survivors had said that you know ask the wrong questions and the answers won't matter, and that's what they try yeah. to get us to do. Yep. So on this one, it doesn't matter if if the states control it, or the, the Congress controls it, or the convention controls itself. Amending the Constitution will not make anybody uphold it. No, it no, simply I, won't happen. I agree. Whatever amended amendment, yeah. amendments that, that that's ratified, yeah. if they get a, a, even a good amendment ratified, will right. go right back to Congress. They will invoke the necessary and proper clause and then interpret it however they want because they know we're not holding them accountable. Now, on top yep. of that, another you, know, you talk you ask about the, uh, can you. Uh, you know, predict or guarantee the outcome. I can guarantee that between the conflict uh, of who controls it between the states and the feds, that this is a federal function, and the federal function doctrine applies, and the Supreme Court has ruled on that, and the Congressional Research Service has uh, has recognized that Supreme Court ruling in their uh, CRS reports on Article 5, uh, the uh, Lesser v. Garnett case. Uh, and this is from the CRS report, and it's quoting from the Lesser case. So the federal function doctrine, which was articulated in the Supreme Court decision of Lesser v. Garnett, would provide the basis for the constitutionality of some form of constitutional convention procedure legislation that would resolve some of the issues that relate to such state applications calling for the constitutional. And this is the important part. The court said, the function of a state legislature in ratifying a proposed amendment to the federal constitution, like the function of Congress in proposing the amendment, is a federal function derived from the federal constitution. 
and it transcends any any limitations sought to be imposed by the people of a state. And when a state legislature decides to ratify a constitutional amendment, that decision under the federal function doctrine would transcend any limitations that the people of the state would seek to impose. And that includes the legislature itself. So the Supreme Court has already ruled on this, that at the end of the day, an Article Five convention is a federal function. It is a deliberative body that was created, just like Congress, with, from within the Constitution itself. And a deliberative body performing a deliberative process is not a, an agent of the state. It is an agent, a, a constitutional convention or an amendments convention. Once convened, is a convention of the people, not of the states even though the delegates come from the states. So I, I, I guess I guess you're 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 implying or uh yeah, rather strongly that people like Michael Ferris that talk about convention of the states that he's actually being uh less than honest. He's being he's being paid to sell a particular narrative. And he's an accomplished Which isn't attorney. True. Which isn't true. Right. Um, making guarantees that they can't make, making assertions um, about uh, things that George Mason has allegedly said at, at the Philadelphia Convention that they'll never provide a specific citation for. And you know, you know how meticulous we are at the Patriot Coalition about sourcing out and providing for public consumption that the sources and we're not using third-party sources. We use official government documents and court cases uh, to substantiate our position and our analyses. And I'm telling you that there's no way to control a convention. And even if you could, and like I said, and get the perfect amendment out of it, you're sending it right back to the James gang, and Jesse and... uh, What was his brother? I forget. But you know, sending it right back to the same crooks that you said you needed to mend it to get in the line in the first place and tell them to enforce it on themselves. Right. (laughs) Goes right back to DC or the Uh, District of Criminals. Yeah. So it's the the states already, the state governments already have uh, all the constitutional authority they need to rein in and out of control federal government. And if they want to get, uh, we need a strong, you know, strong state governments uh, to stand in between we the people and a rogue federal government. Yeah. And right now we don't have no, that. Right? No, I, I, I hear you, Jeff. As I've looked at this, as as I've studied the Constitution, and yeah, you see what's reflected in uh, the Ninth and the Tenth Amendments, where the Anti-Federalist, of course, you know the process they. Uh, the anti-federalists were afraid because they saw that the Constitution was giving the federal government more power than existed under the Articles of Confederation. And they insisted that the Bill of Rights would have to be ratified or, uh, yeah, they only rat- they only ratified the Constitution with the promise of Bill of Rights w- would uh, would come. And Ninth and Tenth Amendments, again, that powers very clearly that weren't there, that weren't expressly said in the Constitution, went to the states went to the people or states. 
So we fast forward to today, and I agree with you. To me, you just know a little bit of this history that you've discussed, just a little bit. And you see it's so, so uh, infuriating how people at the state level, people in the state legislatures lie to us because they say their hands are bound by the federal government and they're not. And then they get into this Article 5 mentality. And it's so absurd because they're not using the power they have to you know, to interpose against the federal government. And then their solution is a federal solution. <laughs> Makes no right. sense. And, and, you know, the, 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 the main culprits, they, they say, are Congress and the courts. And this is a federal function. So like I said, it's a trick question. Everybody has a, a role. Congress has a role. The state legislatures have a role that they can apply for a convention. And then if Congress chooses uh, uh, the state legislatures to ratify after uh, either they proposed or a convention had proposed amendments, then the state legislatures could participate in the ratification phase. Or it could be conventions of the people in the state, and who would be making the rules for the delegate selection to that convention? Would it be is it a state function at that point or a federal function? Again, right. there's good arguments on both sides of that one, but the decision will be decided in the federal courtyard, not the state right. courtyard. And the yeah. only way that it can ever be be settled by the state in the state courtyard is if they held an actual Article 5 convention, a true convention of the states, and invoked the Declaration, which recognized our inherent God-given rights to alter or abolish any government. But they can't... Some people... Uh, they can't... They can't have yeah, the right, yeah, too. Yeah, I see what you're saying. A lot of people are saying, Jeff, because federal federal judges legislate from the bench that that's one of the reasons uh, we need to have an Article 5 convention. How, how would you answer that? Well, it's true, and that's what I, you know, what I was just speaking to, is that uh, it doesn't matter how right as rain you think you are if you're in the state where legislators control this process. and that they can, uh, the, it, it, the referee is the federal courts, federal judges, and they've already, you know, I already cited from uh, a Supreme Court case, and there's been several that speak to this, uh, the uh, uh, <clears throat> unilateral nature of those enumerated powers, whether they're real or uh, imagined, you know, usurped, if they're claiming them and exerting them, uh, that through you know, invoke the supremacy clause, that, that federal law is going to trump anything the states attempt to do. So the Supreme Court has, whatever the current court makeup is, there's already all this precedent of previous Supreme Courts, and they're always remiss to overturn a previous Supreme Court because they like to give the impression of stability. Right. Uh, yeah. in, the, in these judgments and you know, decisions that affect so many people for you know, from here on out until it changes. Right, and then that that's part of the problem too, with the violation of the Constitution over time, with the hundred plus years of progressive or collectivist influences that they have this whole they have this whole body of work of case law 
So they basically redefine constitutional law as case law. And some of these cases were wrong, but they say, well, that case existed. So now we're going to build upon that. So again, I think uh, thinking Article 5, as you said, even if the best amendments came forth, and I don't think they would, it's just it's just so foolish to think then immediately Congress as well as, yeah, the federal, all the federal judges in the Supreme Court then would then just mystically revert back to original intent of the Constitution. I think it's there's no basis to to uh, to believe that. So, so who who is supporting this? I already mentioned uh, Michael Farris. Who, who is this a grassroots thing or is this being pushed by uh, professional lobbyists? It's, it's uh, absolutely being uh, uh, manipulated and originated. Uh, from the top, yeah, there's the billionaires boys club um, going back for half a century have been attempting to get to trigger a convention to get their hands on the Constitution. Um, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, uh, the New States Constitution, and about every ten years, there's a serious. Uh, it's like a it sprouts back up out of the ground again, but it's not it's not coming from the ground. It's coming from these corporate-funded special interest groups such as ALEC, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, ALEC.org. Go there, do a search for Article 5, and you'll find a variety of documents where they've been uh, promoting this for the past five years. Now, they won't tell you who all their corporate sponsors are, but there have been uh, groups that uh, have done investigations to look uh, behind the curtain see who the corporate sponsors are for Allen. But you'll find a lot of the same ones that are corporate sponsors for the uh, NCFL, National Conference of State Legislatures. That one's supposed to be more uh, a left-wing group um, that's uh, in bed with corporate America. They, get, they make more money from the corporate sponsorships than they do the state legislators that belong to these professional associations. Both of them have been promoting uh, various schema, such as the Convention of States or the Compact for America uh, legislation for the past four or five years. And what's, if you look at uh, Freedom Works, uh, Americans for Prosperity, uh, Tea Party Patriots, Cato Institute, uh, all the conservative talking heads from Limbaugh to Beck uh, to Hannity, um, Mark Levin, have been receiving billions of dollars a year over the past six years from the foundations that are funded by the billionaire boys club corporations uh, that have been trying to get their hands on to trigger a a constitutional convention or Article 5 convention since early 60s. If not, and actually we can point to some evidence going back to the late 30s and 40s. So this is not a new um, effort, and it's certainly not for the altruistic reasons of protecting our God-given rights and restoring constitutional governance. That is not the motivation. I, I completely agree that they, the foundations, as always, will then either, A, create fake groups, or B, co-opt existing groups. And, and you look at someone like Michael Farris, a lot of people don't know uh, – People that are involved in uh, in uh, homeschooling 
Okay, no, that he started the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I think he started around 1983. And, yeah, he, he they present this pristine image of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. So he's out there and he says, yeah, he's fighting. He's got attorneys and, yeah, he, he's if you're homeschooling and, yeah, people interfere with you, especially Child Protective Services, yeah, they'll they'll stand by you. It's just like, okay, you back up. Uh Child Protective Services. Where where do we get that? I mean, you look at the uh, you look at the federal constitution. Nothing there about uh, Child Protective Services. Uh, nothing there about family oh, well, courts. And you look. Uh, uh, go ahead. That, that's in the that's in the asterisk clause, the wild card clause. <laughs> you know the, the uh, uh, general welfare clause. Yeah, general welfare. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, you know, the Supreme Court has recognized that, the, and the and the framers, some of them are still alive, and, and that spoke to it. That um, had it been the intention uh, to put in a wild card catch-all uh, authority, there would have been no need to enumerate anything. No, no. Not only would there have been no need to enumerate anything, there's no way it would the that uh, constitution would have ever been ratified. It would have been dead on arrival. But you get back exactly. to CPS, you get back to CPS, you know, it's a little history again comes into play. Family courts are direct that we have today are the direct descendants of the eugenics courts. In the early 20th century, like in North Carolina, for example, went through the 70s, they, you'd have, you'd have a, you know, this board, eugenics board, and uh, they would forcibly sterilize people. They considered idiots, and that was backed by a Supreme Court case. I believe in 1927, Buck versus Bell, Oliver, Wonder Holmes, still on the books. So, today, the whole family court system is supremely unconstitutional because in a family court, it's just a judge without a jury. So you're going to tell me but, there's, well, there's nothing there's in the family court. I've got to stop you. i got, I got good news for you. Uh, okay. Michael Ferris, that heads up the Homeschoolers Legal Defense Association, and is also the director for this Convention of States project, working for Mark Meckler. Um, <coughs> the parental rights amendment. Yeah, you know, I know. Because I know. It, all, all those things that CPS is doing, uh, invading, infr- infringing on parents' rights now, that you just said were unconstitutional, we don't have to worry about any, that anymore. Because with Michael Ferris's parental rights amendment, it'll become constitutional. As long yes, as they I demonstrate know. a governmental interest of the highest order that's not otherwise served, right? <laughs> uh, right. They'll take away uh, they'll, they'll take away parental rights and make it a federal privilege. But my, my point to back up my whole point with him is that this this guy has made millions and millions of dollars. He started this, you know, Patrick Henry College with proceeds from the Homeschool League Defense Association, and this is a classic example of someone providing. You know, false solutions or even controlled opposition for this reason. If he was real, he'd use all of his legal power to challenge in the courts and to pass legislation to eradicate family courts and CPS. Instead, yeah, he just says you have to deal with it. You know, think about the absurdity of so- a social worker showing up at someone's house and just being able to kidnap someone's children at their own will if someone is foolish enough to let them in, which you never have to. That's color of law. So, with a lot of, with someone like Ferris, I mean, the corruption is there for years and years and years. It's to his advantage not to get rid of CPS because by scaring people, this is how he makes money. I know it sounds horrible, but you go to a website, org. org, 
And it's well documented. I mean, these people will basically not solve problems. They want the problems to persist because that's how they gain power well, and money. So so this this guy, Ferris, I mean, he's been corrupt long before his Convention of States mythology, long before that. Well, um, I don't know that, uh, that it's necessarily corruption uh, that it rises to illegal corruption, but it's certainly uh, unethical, in my opinion, and I've seen this a lot with... Uh, a wide range of organizations over the past decade that I've been uh, uh, working on these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> well, you, you can't. I mean, when you when you provide false solutions, you know, it's just like the NRA. Classic example of controlled opposition when they helped write the 1968 Omnibus Gun Control Act that licensed federal gun control dealers direct violation of the Second Amendment. Yet yeah, they're out there and people think, you know, oh that's that's your best friend for gun owners. I mean that that's the that's the most prominent gun organization, a uh, gun control organization in the country. <laughs> I mean but it's to their advantage because they want to create problems because they're not going to get money or power if they just abolished, you know, all all the gun control laws. So when we get back to this Article five, you know, we're dealing we're dealing with so many problems at the federal level, the states, the states at this point, they're not doing their job. What are the real solutions, and where do we start? Well, we had we had to start in the mirror. It's like when you decide to go on a diet, you had to um, st- stop avoiding the, the junk food aisle um, <laughs> and uh, get educated on maybe you know, the caloric intake that you should uh, be targeting. I mean, you, you do a little research, and so. We need to first make a commitment to a, what may for some be a lifestyle change and actually paying attention to what the government is doing. Because you could believe you're not paying attention. Somebody else will that has a, a uh, self-interest, uh, not just looking out for future generations of Americans uh, by preserving the existence of America and what's good about it. Um, there are several things that the state legislatures and legislators should do that we you know, some, I tell them sometimes we need to stand behind them, sometimes we need to stand beside them, and sometimes we need to stand in front of them. But we always need to be keeping a close eye on them because they're our employees, and uh, we have to hold them accountable. Uh, and they you can't just call them up when you're mad at what they're what they're doing wrong. Uh, you need to engage to to get them to, to take action to restore uh, by repealing a lot of laws, by rejecting uh, the grant monies that come with all the strengths from the federal government. Uh, there, there's it sounded the alarm like in North Carolina over uh, Common Core. Uh, there was no reason why, well, there was one reason, uh, arguably, and I don't agree with it, they should have given it back, but that uh, they couldn't afford to give back the $400 million that they got from the uh, Race to the Top or No Child Left Behind funding uh, by, by virtue of their participating in Common Core because they said they, didn't, they couldn't replace it. That was the reason for not getting rid of Common Core. 
and the whole purpose of our education, our public education system, is not to save or make money. It is to educate the kids. And if the citizens of North Carolina think that we need to have the, something that's going to cost us an extra $400 million uh, in our budget, uh, then we need to be having a discussion and figure out a way to pay for it if it's necessary. And then we we would be the ones making the decisions, not federal government, not some uh, board that's uh, unanswerable to the voters. And we have plenty of those commissions and boards and state government, uh, just like with the federal government. So what these legislators should be doing is holding press conferences and town halls with people in their districts and saying, hey, y'all don't like what's going on at the schools? Well, some of that stuff is, is being uh, uh, mandated by the federal government because we took the grant money and entered into a contact, to contract with them to get the money. So they're forcing us under contract law to do this. So if you don't want us to do this, then help us figure out a way to stop taking the money. Yeah, it goes back to what you said, though, as far as, you know, the, you know, the, the moral issue. And when I said with, you know, people are oath breakers, I mean... There is no, in the enumerated powers, there is no place for the federal government to be, to be involved in education. So, if the state of North Carolina took their oath seriously, and unfortunately are, the state constitution does have the Marxist, Marxist language about free public education, which is obviously a lie. But if if at least the people in the state of North Carolina, in the General Assembly, people like Dan Forest, if they were honest and kept their oath of office, they rejected all federal money for education. Obviously, in North Carolina because wouldn't have to deal with Common Core. Right. right. Well, there's, there's no authority for the federal government but, to collect that money or redistribute right. it or for the states right. to take it. Right. Or but getting back to just the state it, part. Right. right. Just getting back to the state part, if we just focus, we just focus on the states, okay? If the state just realize that and, and, and they took their oath of office seriously, education would shrink. But you get someone like Dan Forrest, I mean, he's a great example of of a fake Tea Party leader because he ran this grassroots campaign, even though his mother Schumeyrick was total establishment Republican. I don't know how many years she was in she was in Congress in the House in the District of Criminals, I don't know. But he runs a grassroots campaign, he gets elected and then numerous times he said he wanted North Carolina's teachers to be among the highest paid in the nation. And then he said 95% of Common, common Core is great. You know, we just have to you know, change. We just have to get rid of the copyrights. We do with what we want. I mean, with friends like these, we don't need enemies. But this is where we're at as far as the duplicity the, the of those who serve in office. I mean, Dan Forrest needs to be held accountable for that because he ran as one thing and he's he's governing as another. Uh, Jeff, where can people learn more about Article 5 and the original intent of the Constitution and what the Patriot Coalition is doing? Well, as far as the original intent, uh, uh, let me start at the beginning of that. Go to PatriotCoalition.com. We have a ton of information there. Uh, I would suggest you start with, on the second road, Faith and Courage. And I did. Our rights come from our creator. They don't come from man. We don't have a right to give them up or allow anybody else to take them. 
And if you have faith, God will give you the courage to do what's right. You need to understand allegiance and protection. And that's to, that speaks directly to the relationship between we the people and our government. And it's a two-way street. Um, the directly beside that is the founding documents. You mentioned the original intent of the Constitution. I would uh, tell your listeners that the, the original intent has never changed. The intent today is the same as what people refer to as the original intent when the founders wrote it. You find that in the preamble. And the preamble's never been amended. And so the intent hasn't hasn't been amended. And the intent was to promote the general welfare, but primarily to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. And if you don't have time to keep yourself and your children free to make decisions for yourself, what do you care about? <laughs> uh, so that's why I said we got to do some uh, personal accountability. But uh, if uh, you go to PatriotCoalition.com, we also have a, a, a ton of videos between myself and our general counsel, uh, Richard D. Fry. Uh, we've debated the leadership, the national leadership of every um, group from the right and certainly had uh, some uh, uh, interesting discussions with the leadership of WorldPAC. But the uh, Convention of States, the uh, Compact for America, uh, Citizens Initiatives, uh, we've uh, debated those either separately or jointly uh, from coast to coast. Uh, we've got done a ton of research we have uh, our YouTube channels. Uh, if you go to PatriotCoalition.com and scroll down, you'll see two links to YouTube channels. Just look at the Article 5 playlist. Uh, we have the public debates. We have presentations. Uh, we've done uh, uh, some of these public debates were done in uh, state houses. I highly recommend you watch the two videos with Dr. Edwin Vieira on the Parental Rights Amendment and on the Article 5 Convention. Uh, they are eye-opening. If you don't know who Dr. Vieira is, he literally uh, um, <laughs> wrote the book on uh, constitutional militias, a treatise over 2,500 pages long. Um, he's got four degrees from Harvard, constitutional uh, scholar and attorney. Uh, excellent information on why you, what you need to know to make an informed decision before you jump on the Article 5 carnival wagon. I, I, know, I, know you, I know you do a lot of traveling, Jeff, and uh, I know you do, this, you do this full-time. If someone wanted to donate... Uh, to help you in the Patriot Coalition, how would they go about that? What what apparatus or you know, what mechanism do you have in place for that? Well, unlike some of our peers, we're all volunteers from the top down. Uh, right at the top on the left-hand side on the Patriot Coalition website uh, is a donate button. So in the blanks. Uh, we could uh, use all the help we could get. Uh, we don't... Uh, we don't need a lot, but we don't spend it because we don't spend a lot. We certainly don't waste anybody's money. But we get a lot accomplished no, with, with what we do. No, I, we, uh, we do need donations. 
Now I know I know you're out there. I I know you're out there, and I know you don't have uh, like some of these groups. I don't. Know, I know you don't have that slick machine. I mean, there's certain groups which I will not name tonight, at least, that aren't really uh, political groups. Really, they're really fundraising organizations disguised as as a political activist. I know you're 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 the inverse. You're the political activist that doesn't like to tell people you need to raise funds. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, do, you, do you have time, Jeff? To... We're uh, we're just past nine. C- could you hang out a little bit more? Okay. It looks like we got one person, got one caller, and uh, see if that caller's here. Hello. Is that caller here? Did you turn the mic on? I think I did. Technical issues at the very end of the show, or towards the end of the show. Hmm. I don't know. I well, need to do I, that. I, I didn't. I didn't look at the chat. <laughs> uh, well, if any, anybody has any questions on this because I know there's a podcast uh, as well. Uh, you can write me at uh, jeff at patriotcoalition.com or general counsel uh, richard at patriotcoalition.com um, I'll be in uh, D.C. this coming week uh, for about three days on Capitol Hill um, and then perhaps uh uh, next time I'll have a, the actual bill number for the Jamil Shaw Second Memorial Act of 2015. And I'm sure his list, uh, his listeners would be uh, interested in that, or they should be. Talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, like I said we don't have the, the we got the final what we thought was the final draft, but I had a couple of typos that need to be fixed uh, last Friday. And we're expecting the bill number. But if you go to the 113th Congress, which is the one that just ended, and look for H.R. 1888, or if you go to our blog at Fire Coalition, uh, which is blog.firecoalition.com, and download the uh, Jamil's Law Info Pack, it has a copy of the bill in it. But it, it basically, you know, the President and Congress have both wanted to find some way they could uh, come to terms. And that's not just the current President and Congress. Uh, they all talk about comp- comprehensive immigration reform, but those, that term, those phrases have no meaning, or they have a thousand meanings, depending on who you ask. Uh, there's some, some simple... Uh, legislation that chops at the root of one of the problems, which is a, a lack of uh, enough information and certainly a lack of transparency on the issue of tracking and reporting illegal alien crime. If folks go to firecoalition.com, on the, the left-hand side uh, column, you'll see a, a, a counter 
and it goes up every day um, based on uh, two GAO studies, one done in 2005, another in 2011, that says we're losing 25 people a day at the hands of illegal aliens. That's about a dozen uh, drunk driving deaths, eight to nine murders, three to four negligent homicides every single day. Uh, there have been months uh, and years since 9-11 that we had a D-Day invasion that coming across our southern border every month. That's over 100,000 people a month, and they're only catching 10 to 15%. We have the Visa Waiver Program, in which uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein said uh, when she was uh, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee that... Uh, between uh, just using 2005 and 2006 uh, as examples, or it was 2006 and 2007, but two years back-to-back in the middle of uh, the first decade of the new millennia, uh, that we had 15 and 16 million people, respectively, come here on the visa waiver program. That's 31 million people that the United States does, and this is by air, sea, and land ports of entry, that and that we have no way of knowing that they're coming until they show up at the airport or the seaport or the the, the the southern border, perhaps, or the northern border, or one of our territories or protectorates that are offshore. And what, who, who is this, Jamal? Um, Jamal uh, Charlotte. The second was a rising junior at Los Angeles High School. He was a track star, a football star, a running back. Uh, when uh, he's he's already getting letters from uh, uh, with scholarship offers from major universities, and uh, his uh, his mom's a sergeant in the army was stationed over in Iraq. And uh, uh, Jamil, living with his dad uh, in L.A., Bob's in Iraq, deployed. Uh, he's on his way home from the mall, and he's got a, he's gone by there after school. Good kid. Stayed out of trouble. Uh, gunned down by uh, an illegal alien gangbanger um, because he had a Spider-Man backpack on and the red colors were the colors of a rival gang. And this guy, Pedro, had just gotten out of uh, uh, Los Angeles County Jail or City Jail a couple of days before um, under charges of assaulting an officer and was uh, a suspect in another shooting, and they turned him back out on the street. Nice. And then two days later, he kill, kills Jamil. And you know, there was a special order 40 at the time that prohibited the uh, LAPD from interacting with Immigration Customs Enforcement, with ICE, uh, with DHS, to identify criminal aliens. Well, there's this one of our partners back in 2007 uh, had gone to a, a variety of federal agencies and putting together the, the dark side of illegal immigration, uh, which was a, a, a fact-finding mission 
and he was eventually steered toward the FBI because he couldn't find anybody that uh, acknowledged or had assumed the responsibility of tracking and reporting illegal alien crime in the in the country. And he ends up at the Justice Department, and they send him to the FBI. And I have the emails of the conversations that he had. But if essentially the FBI said, yes, it would be our responsibility if it was anybody's. But uh, we don't do it. Can't do it. <laughs> and he thought, well, why, why not? And they said, because uh, Congress hasn't told us to. <laughs> and it sounds like a flip, a flip answer, but the Uniform Crime Reporting Act dictates what crimes are reported, how often, and to whom, and who has to, who has, who's required to send these reports. And it did not include two categories, nationality and legal status. We need to know what countries are, uh, criminal aliens come from and whether they're here legally or illegally. The only way to properly do that is for our state and local law enforcement to be communicating with the people that keep the records. Immigration yeah, and, and obviously, yeah, obviously it's political. They don't want that because and, they don't want the American public to know just how massive and out of control illegal alien crime is. They don't want us to know. Well, yeah, um, uh, the uh, Rubenstein report, and this is from back in uh, 2007, 2008, so almost a decade ago, um, suggested uh, a number of $340 billion a year that illegal immigration is costing this country. Uh, you know, since 9-11, 2001, well over 118,000 people have died on U.S. soil at the hands of illegal alien invaders. And if we're going to be fiscally responsible um, one of the things that we need to know moving forward is where we need to best allocate manpower and resources to deal with violent criminals. And if they are criminal aliens, nationality and legal status, add them to those reports, uh, to the uh, uh, Table 4 report, that includes uh, a, a specific list of crimes, you know, rape, robbing, and pillaging, and murdering, essentially, uh, that if we know where the greatest concentration of these crimes are, then you know where to, to deploy manpower and resources. If you know what countries, if there's a high concentration of criminal aliens coming from a specific country, uh, and then you look at whether they came on a visa waiver program or a, a school permit or work permit, or a tourist visa, um, then that that uh, enables the State Department to maybe have a conversation with the uh, ambassadors or consuls from that country where we're having a, an excessive amount of their people coming over here raping, robbing, and pillaging, that we might need to scale back or, ha or get them to better scrutinize uh, who they allow to leave their country to come to ours. So I mean, there's a lot of different facets to um, resolving the problems, none of them requiring amending the Constitution. And one no. of the things we're dealing with uh, uh, illegal aliens and illegal alien crimes specifically, 
<clears throat> is that lack of the public really knowing and being able to point a finger at um, this is how bad it is. Those numbers that we have on the Fire Coalition site are interpolated. That's Congressman Steve King's word for it. Um, from that GAO study, and both of which are also linked in that top article at uh, the Fire Coalition blog. Uh, there's some rather, if, uh, if you got kids, there's some, not morbid, but there's some serious pictures that, uh, in that article about Jamil Shaw and why we got, uh, this is the fifth Congress in a row that uh, we've gotten this legislation introduced and the second that we've got it named after a victim and it being Jamil Shaw second. Uh, uh, All-American family, uh, military family, a uh, ethnically or racially minority family, middle class, hardworking. I mean, you could put this family in so many categories, but at the end of the day, they're an American family that lost uh, one of their children at the hands of somebody who should never have been here. And we can't yep. name this bill after all of them, but this family has been reliving their tragedy, and that's why I included some pictures from their funeral of their eldest son. That is, don't let what happened to their family happen to yours if it can be prevented. And with the rise of ISIS and the, the, the crazies in Iran that have already you know, just salivating to, to blow us off the map, um, we need to be a little more uh, secure as a nation. And that starts with yeah, well, borders and ports of entry. It starts with enforcing well, I, I, the law. I've said numerous times. No, I agree. I, I've said numerous times. I mean, that, that, that's the issue that made me an activist, really, because after 9-11, you know, we were told, you know, all these things had to be done. They had to pass the Patriot Act, which no one read. Uh, they set up the Department of Homeland Security, which had been written before 9-11. Uh, the, everything was focused on transforming us into a domestic police state, and that continues in earnest, as you know, yet the borders have never been secured. doesn't matter if there's a Republican in the White House. doesn't matter if there's a Democrat in the White House. And then they, yeah. they, they lie to the American people and say, well, we need this comprehensive immigration reform. We, we, in order to secure the borders, we have to basically grant amnesty, which is a lie. And uh, yeah, I, I applaud you for what you're doing, Jeff. It's uh, it's not easy, but uh, you know we have to, as you know, citizen activists, we have to we have to hold them accountable and uh, try and get good people in office because they're just there. They have violated their oath. They are oath breakers. Anybody? Well, that, thanks. Anybody thanks for your that, time, Jeff. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. One last thing: anybody that, that gets sucked into it's all Obama's fault, or it's all Bush's fault. Um, they're being played for suckers because it is no one man's fault. Uh, there's plenty of blame to go around, and we should, if we're going to play the blame game, we should start with the ones that we find in the mirror. And, yeah. and uh, it's no, uh, it's, right. It's no one party's fault because, uh, you know, obviously no. the same problems persist, you know, regards, regards, of pop, uh, regards of which party is controlling the White House Congress. Thanks again, Jeff. I really appreciate your time, what you're doing. Thanks for having me. Anytime. Take care. 
You have been listening to the KRP Radio Show. KRP Radio! Please visit my website, paradishift.net, P-A-R-A-D-S-H-I-F-T.net. You can search there. I have a number of articles on the Article 5 Convention, as well as other issues. Uh do appreciate, again, Pudgy giving me this platform. Thank you for listening, and Pudgy will be back next week, same time. Good night. I'm saying it's crazy, like, I'm going to tell y'all a little something about my homie, right? This shit sunny, man. I don't know how y'all going to take it, man. I mean, did she say that? That's what you probably going to say. It's going to be like, yo, did you say that? A trip through Liberalville. Come with me on a trip through Liberalville. Call it what you may. The ghetto, the hood, the block, the trap is nothing more than the outcome of liberal policy. If the Negro in the ghetto must eternally be fed by the hand that pushes him into the ghetto, he'll never have the strength to get out of the ghetto. That's Carter Woodson, and it's the premise for this article. Now, when most people think about Liberalville, called by one of the aforementioned nicknames, they think drugs, crime, trash, and desperation, low-grade public housing, limited job opportunities, and no chance at a quality education. They just forget to look at the equation. People plus liberal politics equals total degeneration. You need a better tour guide. What's really there, the liberals had. People of all faiths, colors, and creeds, all with a basic need to belong. See, it's the same song from 8-Tracks, the Wax CD, the iPod. Living in Liberalville is hard. Or is it? Let me tell you what I see when you remove the democratic elite. I see the poet. Feelings into verbs, action into words, a revolution has occurred in modern-day storytelling. His wit is hard to defeat, his desire makes it hard to compete, but his skill stays on mixed tastes and side streets because we find value in the industry. I see the artist, a vision in his head, bigger than any paper or pad, graffiti formed on walls, and it's sad. We find no value in the art that he shares, so it stays in Liberalville halls instead of on museum walls. His property values continue to fall. I see the pastor. Broken and remade, no longer weighed down by past mistakes, saved and enraged. Those around him continue to fade from God's glory to government shade in an attempt to be made into what our Savior already promised. I see the banker. Never stepped foot out of Liberalville still. The boy can convert euros to yen and back to dollars again, accounting for inflation and taxation trapped in a situation where he doesn't understand the value of his instant computations. I see the politician on a mission to stand in opposition to anyone who would change the rules halfway through the game. He can rev up the folks, folks and gather the vote, but it's a shame. He has no power or desire until shots are fired and the people need someone to blame. I see the lawyer. Not court, but street-appointed masters of defense. Not bar, but street associates of common sense. In a pinch, he can play name that crime. He can list the charges, guess the verdict, and predict prison time. Dirty hands and deeds protected by a brilliant mind. I see the social worker. Two kids of her own, two of her brothers, never doing for self, always for others. I shudder to feel such a back-breaking weight. Low funds, short supply, and empty plates, and a support system that says, wait, fall a little further, then we'll save the day. I see the psychiatrist. Oh, she may be whacked out, she may seem, but for free she'll break down your dreams whether you asked her to or not. She spots those who pass with a swift kick in the ass and says, hold up, not so fast. 
Your mom did it and so did I. The answer to your problem is not getting high. It's doing more than just getting by. I see a promise. I see a possibility. A promise and a possibility with a capital P and potentially the only salvation for our community. K-I-R-P. Radio!